0: Uh, 6.25 if you're using a pew Bible and any kids here, uh, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to children's church who'd like to go. Uh, Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7. A couple weeks ago we studied verses 1 to 7 but today I want to go back to just verse 7 and drill down deeper into it because it's a critical verse for understanding the book of Proverbs. Um, so let me just read the verse. It's Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It's actually our memory verse for this morning. Did anyone memorize it this week? Feel free. It's not bragging if you go like, okay, there's a few. I saw like two hands. Is that it? Two? Really? Three, four, five. Okay, I'm feeling better. It's good. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. It goes like this The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. I read you a little excerpt from a book by Habits of the Heart by Bella. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy and who describes her faith as Sheilaism. She says, I believe in God. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church my faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond belief in God, though not many. In defining her own Sheilaism, she says, It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess, take care of each other. I think he would want us to take care of each other. You know, as I read that little. Uh, anecdote, it just struck me as such a a great summary of the kind of spirituality that is in our culture today. Uh, As people today increasingly are giving up on the idea of objective truth or or objective reality and uh, definitely giving up on the institutional church and outward forms of religion, there's still a yearning for spirituality broadly defined. And so what you find is that the move today is to turn inward, uh, kind of like Sheilaism or Jeremyism or Bobism or Sallyism or whatever your name is. And, and we sort of look inward. It's you know, doing theology by looking in the mirror and saying, you know, what am I like and what would I like God to be like? And we end up sort of creating a God or a spirituality that's very much like ourselves. And the kind of spirituality that, that we sort of read about there is encapsulated in Sheilaism is a kind of God that you'd probably like to go to coffee with. And this God, you know, you could share your problems and this God would share his or her problems or whatever the case may be. And, and you could talk and just, you know, uh, give ideas and, and lean on each other and laugh with each other. It's that kind of friendly, buddy sort of God. But I will say this, the kind of God described there in Sheilaism, is a God that you would never fear. And yet, when you look at the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, one of the most common ways that the Bible summarizes the totality of biblical spirituality is with the phrase, fearing God. It's just a very common way of talking about it. Uh, In fact, there it is in our text, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is a very common biblical phrase. Um, So apparently, to find wisdom and to find God, we have to fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. Now, we've been talking about wisdom here uh, for the last couple Sundays. We've been getting into the study of Proverbs. And as you know, wisdom... Uh, as as we've studied wisdom is more than just intelligence wisdom is more than education wisdom means knowing how to live your life practically in a way that is glorifying and honoring to God so it's not just having a bunch of head knowledge it's about knowing how to live life in a way that pleases God that's wisdom and so according to Proverbs the way to start with wisdom the the way you get into it is you have to fear the Lord that's the beginning of knowledge or or you could say wisdom the words are kind of interchangeable here in this opening section So uh, the path the doorway is the fear of the Lord and beyond that doorway lies the path of wisdom. You have to enter in through the fear of the Lord and then you're on the path. Although in some ways that's not a perfect analogy because it kind of gives the idea that you go through the fear of the Lord then you kind of leave it behind and then you're done with it. You know, it's the beginning but then you move beyond the beginning. But that's not right either because when it's saying here that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, it's more like it's the the fundamental principle of wisdom. In other words, the way wisdom works is fundamentally about fearing God. So you don't really move beyond it. You just kind of keep building on it. Uh, That's more the concept that's uh, being talked about here. If you were to take uh, wisdom and put it under a, a microscope and scan it down to the molecular level, so to speak, what you would see at the molecular level would be the fear of the Lord. It's made up of that. For those of you computer types out there, the fear of the Lord is the operating system on which you run the wisdom applications, but it's the basis on which the whole thing works. My oldest son has just gotten into a new sport that he's really enjoying. I'm actually really enjoying watching him too. It's uh, He's gotten into fencing, which is, I, I watch him, I want to do it too. I know that would surprise you playing with swords and all, but I, I really, uh, <laughs> strangely enough, I'm kind of drawn to that. But you know, you watch him do fencing and if you've ever done fencing or boxing, it's very much uh, it's a lot of similar things in it. Um, but, you know, what's, what's the foundation of fencing? I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with the sword. It's all footwork. And so for the first several sessions they've been in fencing, most of the time they don't even pick up a foil. They just practice. They drill over and over. Step, you know, advance, lunge, back step. You know, and they have all these, and they're working on their footwork. And so you could say that footwork is the beginning of fencing. That's the same kind of idea. Do you ever move beyond footwork and say, "Okay, well, I've got that master; I don't have to do that anymore"? No. I mean, it's everything is built on that. Even the best fencers in the world, you know, they're masters of footwork. It's it's knowing how to distance yourself in in uh, relationship to the, uh, to your opponent. And so, in the same way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It means you never move beyond it. It's just the uh, the atmosphere in which wisdom thrives and flourishes is in a fear of God. Or just to say the same thing, but from a different angle, you could also just look at the location of Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 within the whole book of Proverbs. I mean, check this out. Let's take the camera angle now and kind of pull it back from that one verse and look at the whole book of Proverbs. Where is chapter 1, verse 7 located in the whole book? Well, it's part of the introduction. So chapter 1, verses 1 to 7 is the introduction to Proverbs. In other words, it's part of the whole... Uh, section that sets the agenda for the whole book. Verses 1 to 7 tell us what the whole book is about. And in 1 to 7, I think 7 is really the climax of the introduction. So th- the whole introduction builds to verse 7, and then that whole thing together introduces the whole book. So you might argue that verse 7 in some way is the programmatic agenda for the entire book of Proverbs. It is central. The fear of the Lord is is the beginning, it's the essence of wisdom. So if we want to be wise, if we want to learn how to live the way God has designed us to live, we need wisdom. And how do you get wisdom? Well, you have to fear the Lord. Which then raises another question. Okay, what does that mean? How do you fear God? What what does that mean? I could take that word fear in a lot of different ways, couldn't I? I mean, is fearing God the kind of thing you feel when you're watching a spooky movie? And, and you know, that tense part and then the piano in the background and the soundtrack goes ding, 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 and a hand comes out from behind the wall and you go, ah! you know, is that the kind of fear we're talking about here? Is it the fear that you would feel if you're walking down the street and, and minding your own business and you looked up and you realized you're being charged by a pit bull and you suddenly have that animalistic fight or flight instinct, that adrenaline kicks in? Is that the kind of fear we're talking about when we're saying you should fear God? Is the fear of the Lord the kind of fear that a a boy feels who has an abusive father and again one night he hears dad come in and dad's in a drunken rage and so the boy is just pulling the blankets up over his head in bed just hoping dad won't come in again and hurt him. That's a kind of fear. Is that what we're saying to my God? Should we relate to God as sort of an enraged, abusive father? Is that, what does it mean to fear him? I mean, that's a really big question because that's a very strong word, fear. And I think that we struggle with that because it's like, what does that mean, fearing God? So, uh, as I wrestled with this, I just found that the hardest thing in studying this passage as I was preparing the sermon. What does it mean to fear God? And as I studied the phrase, both in Proverbs and outside of Proverbs, I just found it to be a really complex big, multifaceted, rich, uh, interesting concept. It's just those five words in English, the fear of the Lord. In Hebrew, it's just two words, Yahweh, the fear of Yahweh. It's two words. And yet, those two little words in Hebrew or those five little words in English summarize a a huge um, understanding of what it means to relate to God. So what I want to do is I want to give you, I was trying to figure out how to do this, I think what I want to do is give you a working definition of the fear of the Lord that I've crafted. This is not the only definition. You could probably define it another way but let me sort of give you, as I've studied it, because that's what I had to do for myself, I had to sort of summarize it. Alright, what is the fear of the Lord? What is this thing? And then we'll sort of start at the end and then go back to the beginning and try to take you through what that definition means. So, let me give you a definition. This is not the only definition. uh, But this is just sort of how I've tried to summarize in my mind to summarize all the biblical teaching. Uh, It would go like this. The fear of the Lord is a reverent love for God's majestic holiness. So the fear of the Lord is reverent love for God's majestic holiness. So there's fear, which translated as reverent love, and it's fear of the Lord, but it's specifically one aspect of Him, I think in particular His majestic holiness. So the fear of the Lord could be defined as uh, reverent love for His majestic holiness. Let me um, break that down then. First of all, it's reverent love. So it's a trembling adoration. It's a humble worship of God. That's what, It's a reverent love for Him. And I was thinking about that concept of reverence. Uh, you, you know, this idea of being humbled before God. You, you see it, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 15. Uh, turn over in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33. Notice the concept of reverence associated with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 15.33 It says, The fear of the Lord teaches a man wisdom. Okay, we've heard that. But then it says, And humility comes before honor. So the uh, author of that proverb has set up a parallelism. The fear of the Lord is parallel to humility and wisdom is parallel to to honor. So the fear of the Lord is associated with humility. It's about humbling ourselves before God and recognizing He's great. It's reverence, reverence. Which is kind of, I was thinking, a concept we don't really have in our culture very much. There's not much we revere, is there? We're pretty much in a reverent culture. That's the way humor is. Uh, the kind of humor I was raised on that sort of shaped my understanding, my sense of humor, you know, for good or for ill, is, is kind of this irreverent, uh, thing. You know, it's the five S's, the five S's of humor today. Saturday Night Live, <laughs> Simpsons, South Park, Seinfeld, and Stern. <laughs> you know, those are the five kinds of things. It's like the Family Guy TV show. What does it all have in common? Well, the, the basis of the humor is find out what is kind of sacred or off-limits or taboo, and then go and do an episode where you just touch the third rail you're not supposed to touch and we all say oh my goodness I can't believe what was on they talked about last night you know and it's sort of you know the shock jock uh, kind of approach and so everything is um, there's an irreverence uh, to our culture and and I think you know there's a time and place for satire as a type of humor but, uh, but but we really live in a cultural context where nothing is sacred nothing is sacred Nothing is off limits. Everything can be lampooned. Everything can be ridiculed and mocked and made fun of and satirized, uh, no matter what it is. And the more you say, well, don't touch that, the more people are going to say, okay, we're going to touch that. You know, it's like, it's like kind of like we've all become two-year-olds. You know, don't do that. And the, you know, we go right over and do that. You know, I, if I want to get my three, I have a three-year-old son. If I want him to get him to do anything, all I say is don't do it. It's, it's easy. It's like, it's tricky to say, don't do that. And he goes and does it just to show me. So, you know, we're kind of like that. Don't do that. That's reverent. And yet God calls us to reverence. And I was just thinking, uh, as I was thinking through applying this to my own life, like, do I have an approach to God that includes reverence? Do I ever get on my knees to pray? Not because I'm supposed to, or that's the right way to pray, but am I ever just struck by who God is, and I... I just feel I need to get on my knees before Him and bow down to God, even physically with my body. Do I revere God in that sense of the word? I think one of the weaknesses, um, one of the critiques you could say of modern uh, evangelical worship in a lot of churches uh, is is that it's monotonal. It has one tone, which is celebration. You know, you go to a lot of contemporary worship and it's all, you know, upbeat. <laughs> you know, and, and you know what? There's a place for celebration in worship. There's the joy of the Lord. There is rejoicing. We, we should celebrate our salvation. It should be joyful. In fact, I would even say, Sasha Baptist, we could grow in learning how to be more expressive with ourselves to, to celebrate who God is. But there's also other tones in worship, and one of them is reverence. It's quiet and it's humble. And so, this, you know, you see all of that in the Bible. And I was thinking, some of the times I felt closest to God in my life, and, you know, here we're kind of getting into personal experience, but times where I felt, if you could use those words, like God's presence really close. The thing it's sort of motivated me to do is just to be really quiet and still and humble before God, not to jump up and down. Um, it's, know, that's been my own experience. But then you look in the, the Bible. And you look at all of those interesting stories where God appears before His people, or He shows up and talks to somebody, and what's the common response when God appears to people in the Bible? Do they say, Hey everybody, God is here! Woo! Celebrate! You know what? Everyone starts, you know. Again, there's a place for celebration, but that doesn't seem to be what people do. What do you see when God shows up in the Bible? People just get on their faces. It's almost involuntary. You look at uh, Revelation chapter 1 when the risen Christ appears to the Apostle John in the island of Patmos. It says, I turned around and I fell at Jesus' feet as though dead. There's almost this involuntary collapsing before God because, it, uh, because of reverence. I, uh, I remember this experience I had when I was a little kid. My, we grew up in the southwest, so we'd go to the Grand Canyon a lot. And I remember one time early on, one of the trips we went to the Grand Canyon, my sister was really little, and my mom and I kind of remember this story. But uh, we got out of the car, and you start walking up to the Grand Canyon, and if you've ever been there, it almost doesn't look real. It's so big, it looks like you're looking at a huge painting that just goes on and on. And, and we got closer to the Grand Canyon, and I remember my sister heading up, and there was railings and everything, but as she, you know, she's this little kind of uh, wiry kid, and she's getting closer to the edge, and as she starts to look over the edge, she instantly fell on in her stomach. It just whoop, spread eagle. And we couldn't get her to move because she was just you know, looking at this huge thing with these thousand foot drop-offs. And there's a sense in which the fear of God must include reverence before Him. That we stand in awe of Him and His majesty. And, and that really leads me to the next part of the definition Uh, the fear of the Lord could be defined as a reverent love for or in response to or in light of or because of the majestic holiness of God. In other words, what is it about God in particular that causes us to revere Him? And you might say, well, it's everything about Him. And that's true. It's His whole person, His whole character, all of His attributes. But when you look again at the, the Scriptures, it seems that there's one attribute in particular that kind of leads the way in um evoking reverence from us. There's one particular aspect of God that just seems to always be out there, mentioned particularly that causes people to fall down, and that aspect is holiness. It's the holiness of God in particular. And holiness of course is God's his, uh, his otherness, his burning moral purity. The fact that He hates sin and He's above all evil and He's so pure and righteous. It says in the Old Testament, our God is a consuming fire. He's a holy, luminous, bright, glorious God in whom there is no evil whatsoever. And so what happens is when you come into the presence of that God is you become painfully aware of how sinful you are. You know, Until you come and see God, you're like, yeah, I'm fine, you're okay, I'm okay, we're all good people, blah, blah, blah. But then you finally see God, the real measuring stick against which we should measure ourselves, not the guy down the street, but God. And we say, oh, oh my God. <laughs> and not in taking his name in vain, but look at him. And we fall on our faces in reverence, in the recognition of our own sin. So, for instance, look at uh, Proverbs chapter 8. This is another part of what it means to fear the Lord, is the sense of his moral purity. Look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. We studied this uh, two weeks ago, a week before Stan was here. Didn't Stan do a great job, huh? He's a good preacher. Aren't you glad that he's down in Plymouth, leading that church down there? Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. That's interesting, isn't it? So I think what that means is, the kind of the way I, I understand all that fitting together, is because I revere God and His holiness and purity, if I really revere Him, I'm naturally going to want to align myself with His holiness. And if He is holy, I will want to be like Him because I revere Him. We, we resemble what we revere. We look like what we worship. And so if I'm worshiping and revering God, I'm going to want to start living a holy life too. Or look, uh, just another, for instance, same point, different verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 2. Quickly, chapter 14, verse 2 in Proverbs says, He whose walk is upright fears the Lord, but he whose ways are devious despises Him. Again, if we fear and reverence God's holiness, we will naturally want to live upright lives ourselves. We'll want to align with the God that we revere. And sure enough, when you look at passages and stories in the Bible, where God has revealed Himself to people very clearly, what you'll often see is that people respond with reverence and a recognition of their sin. And what they especially respond to is the holiness of God. So, for instance, Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. You know the story? Moses is out tending sheep and he looks over and he sees this bush. And it's on fire, but the bush is not being consumed. And he says, well, that's odd. Every time I've seen a bush on fire, it usually just goes away, but that bush still seems to be there. I'm going to go over and check that out. So, you know, come on, guys. And he takes the sheep over. And as he gets closer, it even gets weirder because the bush starts talking to him. And it says, Moses, and he's like, yeah. Uh, and, And it says, take off your sandals because the place you are standing is what kind of ground? Holy ground. And he says, oh, it's holy And he does take off his sandals and it says that he was afraid to look at God. And so what is it that strikes Moses? Is it the fascination of kind of a miraculous thing of a burning bush? No, it's the holiness of God that captures his heart. And he says, I'm in the presence of a holy God. I can't even look at that God. Uh, Or another, for instance, uh, what about when Isaiah is introduced to God for the first time and gets called to be his servant? In fact, let's turn there. We're we're close anyway. Isaiah chapter 6 It's on page 680. Isaiah chapter 6. Hopefully you've read this story before. If not, this is a good one. Isaiah chapter 6. This is when Isaiah sees God. And again, notice the reverence in response to God's holiness and the way it brings about a recognition of His own sinfulness. It says in Isaiah 6.1, In the year that King Uzziah died, So this is about 700 years after Moses. So we've we've gone forward in time about 700 years. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So he has a vision of God. He's having a visionary experience. I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying. So here's these seraphs. The seraph, seraph, is a Hebrew verb that means to burn. So this is literally the noun form of, of to burn. So a seraph is, just means burning thing. We don't even know what they are. They're just burning things. You look at them and you're like, I don't know what that is. It's just on fire. So some holy, scary, angelic being. But even these holy, scary, angelic beings in God's presence are like this because they can't look at God. Why? Verse 3. They were calling to one another... Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And what is Isaiah's response? Yay, God's here! Woohoo! Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. I'm dead. I'm toast. I'm kaput, it's over. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And so seeing the utter burning holy majesty of God, He is brought to a place of recognizing how sinful He is. Have you ever had the awkward experience of going to a social event that you thought was more casual than it was? And you walk in, and like you thought it was kind of chill, but it's everyone's in nice gowns and suits, and maybe even tuxes here and there. And you just walk in, and you're there with your little present. And you look down, and you have khakis on and a polo shirt. And You're just like, oh, and you know, you just totally feel like an, a tool. You're like I can't believe I'm wearing this in this party. That's what it's like to come into the presence of God. <laughs> you think you're fine. I'm fine, you're fine, we're all good. You're decent, I'm decent. You recycle, I recycle. I mean, you know, we're good people. But then you come into God's presence and it's not just that it's a black tie affair. He's in the burning royal robes of His Holy Majesty. And morally speaking, we look down at ourselves and I'm like, I'm dressed in filthy, dirty rags. You know, We're dressed like prostitutes and pimps in the presence of the Holy King. We're dressed just in uncleanliness. And we're like, oh, He is a holy, holy God. And people are brought to despair. And you say, well, yeah, in the Old Testament, that's when God was mean, but He's nice in the New Testament. Um. (laughs) Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. Look at Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. It's on page 1019. Luke chapter 5, page 1019 in the Puge Bible. So we have the call of Moses, the call of Isaiah. How about the call of Peter? Another one of God's servants. What happens when Peter's called? Well, Luke chapter 5, you may know the story. Basically, Jesus is preaching and he gets in the boat, gets in Peter's boat. Peter's a fisherman. And after the sermon, he goes, Peter, let's go out fishing. And Peter's like, "Um, well, we fished all night and we didn't catch anything. So I don't think they're really biting right now, Lord, but you know. All right, whatever, you're the Lord, you know, you're you're Jesus. If you want to go out fishing, fine. Let's go out fishing. So they go out fishing, right? They let down their nets and what happens? They get the all time world record catch from the Sea of Galilee. You know, they get the Bass Pro Shop all time record and there's more fish than have ever been caught in one time ever in the history of the Sea of Galilee. And all the nets are breaking and all the boats are tipping over because of the you know, the the weight of the fish pulling the boats down. And so there's yet another miracle. So we had the miracle of the burning bush, the miracle of the vision, now we have the miracle of the catch. But again, it's not the miracle that gets Peter's attention. He's not like, wow, that's cool, all those fish. Look, it's a recognition suddenly by God's grace of who Jesus is. And so in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees. And he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Just a place of brokenness before God. He sees the holiness of God in the person of Christ. And it makes him realize he's woefully underdressed for a meeting with God. And you know what? Whenever God has shown up in human history, whenever there have been periods of revival, you guys have heard of revivals this is what it's like. And when I say revival, I'm not talking about man-made revivals. You know, man-made revivals is like, hey, we're going to have a revival three weeks from now and we're going to rent a hall and we're going to get musicians and get speakers. Okay, that's not a revival. That's just a meeting. It's good. We should have those. We should worship God. But that's not a revival. A revival's like a nor'easter. <laughs> you can't control it. It just happens whether you want it to or not. And whether the church is ready or not, it happens. It's like the blizzard of 78. You're just trying to live your normal life and revival comes. Wham! and God changes things. That's how revivals, at least have worked historically. And when revivals come, there's always a sense of the holiness of God and our sinfulness. Let me read you an eyewitness account of the 1859 revival that hit Scotland about 150 years ago or so. This is an eyewitness account. The eyewitness says then at, at that revival, the one deep dominant note was an overpowering sense of sin. The sense of sin is not found in anything like the same degree today. Then there were old, gray-haired men and women, young men and maidens, weeping and sobbing as if their hearts would break with sorrow. And the realization of the presence of the Spirit of God was such as to overawe us so much that we dare not speak except in whispers as we try to point those in agony of soul to the savior that's what a real revival is like the overwhelming sense of the presence of god that not only shows us how great he is but how broken and sinful we are before him because until god shows up in that manner you know we well we'll use oh, proverb's language you and i are fools <laughs> We're fools. We're born fools. All children are fools. We grow up as teenagers fools, and we're foolish adults, until unless at some point in that process we learn the fear of the Lord. And what do fools say? Fools say things like this: "I don't need God. You know, I'm smart and I'm, I'm successful, and you know, God's really for people who can't handle life." That's what God's for. I mean, some people need that because they're scared and they've been through difficulties in life. And you know, I respect their beliefs, but I don't need that. You know, I'm scientific. I'm rational. And finally, you know, I'm a good person. I serve my country. I pay my taxes. I you know, coach my kids' basketball team. I'm a decent, fine, upstanding person. And that's fool talk because it doesn't take into account at all the holiness and majesty of God. But when God reveals Himself, there is a brokenness and there is a recognition of His greatness and our sinfulness. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. If you've never had an experience in your life where you have come to see the heinousness of your sin before God and have been grieved by it, then you're probably not a Christian. You can't be a Christian unless you repent. And repentance is recognizing our sin and confessing it humbly before God. It can look different ways. I'm not saying you have to weep like they did at that revival, but you know, sometimes it can be quiet, sometimes it can be loud. But however it happens, you know, Jesus said to enter the kingdom of God, we have to repent and believe. And so there has to be a time where we say, I am guilty before God. And it is bad. And I need a Savior. And if you've never experienced that, please don't think that any amount of church going and good tourism is what makes you a Christian. It's recognizing our sinfulness before God in some way or some form as God reveals that to you. And it causes us to say, Woe to me, I am a sinful man. Away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman, a sinful child. And so the definition is, the fear of God is a reverent love for His majestic holiness. But you notice there's a word in there I haven't talked about. It's the word love. I kind of skipped over that on purpose. It's reverent love. And so the fear of the Lord that saves is not just saying, You're awesome, You're holy, and I bow before You. But we have to love God. Jesus said to be saved, you have to repent and believe. So there has to be reverence and love. That's you know repentance and faith. We we have to love God too. So the fear of the Lord we're talking about here is not just being scared, but it's entering into a covenant, loving relationship with God. Um, let me just read you a text. This is from Deuteronomy chapter twenty, or rather chapter ten. I'll just read it. You can listen. Deuteronomy chapter ten says, "And now, O Israel, what does the Lord God ask of you? What does God want from you?" But To fear the Lord your God. And then it goes on. To walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands. So the fear of God is pasted together with serving Him, loving Him, walking in His ways with all of our heart and with all of our soul. That's a loving relationship with God. Which then poses the question, how do you have a loving relationship with a God like the one we've been talking about? (laughs) What does that look like? I mean, everything we've been reading is God is holy and we are not. And God is the majestic, awesome, burning, consuming fire God. And when we come into His presence, we realize not how close we are to Him, but how different and separated we are from Him. And so then we're supposed to love Him too. I mean, how do you love when you're mostly just saying, away from me, I'm a sinful man? I mean, it just seems like... The one is pushing it this way and and love is going the opposite direction. How do you love a God like that? How can you know a God like that? And I, I guess the best way to answer the question is just to give you one word. The word is Jesus. That in the person of Jesus Christ, the holy, awesome, burning, righteous, perfect God crossed that eternal difference between us and Him that we could never cross. He crossed it to come to us. And in the person of Jesus, He lived with us. He walked among us. He had dinner with us. He rubbed shoulders with our dirty lives and walked our dirty streets and listened to our dirty talk. And and He was with us. And then, Jesus went to the cross. And on the cross all of the heinousness and wretchedness of my lack of love and honor for God was poured out and visited upon Jesus rather than me. And so God not only came to me but in Jesus, but then He took all of that which separates me from Him and Jesus said, I'm going to take that and He bore the curse for all of that so that I could be forgiven and love God. No one has ever loved me the way Jesus has loved me. Nobody has ever forgiven me as much as God has forgiven me, and it's such a price. I have never been accepted the way God has accepted and embraced me. (laughs) So, yeah, I love Him. (laughs) I love Him. And my love is so imperfect and so fleeting and hot and cold and all that. And He still loves me. And even when my love for Him is lame, which it usually is, Jesus says, yep, yeah, I died for that too. <laughs> and I say, alright, Lord, I'm going to follow You now and I fall again. Jesus says, it's okay, I died for that too. And The more I become a Christian, the more I'm just overwhelmed at the extent of what God has done to love me. And so it's all God and it's zero Jeremy. God has done it. God has crossed the gap. God has paid for my sin. God has brought me to Himself. And I'm just astounded at His love. So yes, I love Him because He first loved me. That's Christianity. Not do good, go to church, try to do better. Because you can't. You're a sinner, I'm a sinner. It's not going to work. What works is recognizing what He has done and embracing Him and His righteousness. It made me think of... I, I was thinking of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when I was writing this sermon. You guys know that. seen the movie or read the book by C.S. Lewis. And, uh, you know, it's about this fantasy world of Narnia, but it's kind of an allegory. Not 100% allegory, but there's allegorical elements in it. And in it, uh, Jesus is represented by a lion. The lion's name is Aslan, if you know the story. And Aslan is this great lion. It's interesting. Aslan is the son of the king who lives beyond the sea. And, and it comes in the, this first book, the time when the children... Uh, finally get to meet Aslan face to face. They've just heard a lot about him, but they never get to meet him. Finally get to meet him. And this is how the introduction goes. It says, As for Aslan himself, the beavers and the children, so there's some talking beavers, but never mind, that's just a little detail. Um, (laughs) The beavers and the children didn't know what to do or didn't know what to say when they saw him. Get this. People who have not been in Narnia sometimes think that a thing cannot be good and terrible at the same time. If the children had ever thought so, they were cured of it now. May God give us the grace to see the righteousness and holiness and majesty of His person. And then may God give us grace to see how far short we fall and to be honest about that, not to try to paper over it. And then once we've seen how holy He is and how far short we fall, may He lead us to see Jesus and to love Jesus and to live in the forgiveness and life that Jesus offers. Let's pray.